Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 63. What a disappointment you've been. This week, we're discussing season 4, episode 3 of Buffy, The Harsh Light of Day, and series 5, episode 1 of Doctor Who, The Eleventh Hour. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, so starting with Buffy this week, um, I wanted Mm. to note something really quick, which uh, is sort of one of these little crossover things. Um, This episode was written by Jane Espenson, um, and that's fortunate because I actually wanted to mention something about her that I meant to mention in our uh, recap of the Davies era for Doctor Who, um, and I completely just forgot um, that she actually is hugely involved in the season four of Torchwood um, that I mentioned. So yeah. I did mention that that was which, a... Which you said Davies was also Yeah, no, he... Involved. It was one of these uh, uh, British-American co-productions that he worked on when he mm-hmm. went over to the States. So... Uh, I think I did mention that, that BBC um, paired yeah. with stars. So, you know, Brits got it on BBC, Americans got it on stars, and they kind of did it. So it features, you know, Jack and Gwen, you know, as the sort of, you know, British contingent, and then it introduces some new American characters and, you know, kind of makes this little international thing out of it. Um and, you know, Davies was, you know, producing and writing and heavily involved, but they also wanted to have some American voices um, in, you know, the telling of the story as well. Um, and, you know, by far the most prominent is Jane Espenson, who, um, you know, wrote or co-wrote something like five out of the ten episodes um, and co-executive produced them as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I mentioned that Davies was a huge fan of Buffy from way back, so I'm sure he knew... Espenson's work and was, you know, kind of, and, and I think we know that she's a, a documented fan of Doctor Who and Torchwood as well before she worked on it. I've seen her make reference to that. So um, just a nice little point of crossover. And I thought since she's our writer this week, we might as well mention that. Um, yeah. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about this episode that she wrote. Um, and so... I kind of wanted to start talking about kind of what seems to be the kind of overall pattern and theme of the episode. Um, And the title kind of plays into this, interestingly. It's one of those, occasionally, I find with Buffy especially, we get these titles that I'm not quite sure what exactly they refer to. Because they don't... So the harsh light of day. I mean, yeah, we get Spike putting on a ring that means he's you know, invincible, I guess, and so he can go outside in the sunlight, which would normally burn him. So there is a kind of literal referent in the episode that that could apply to, but that's really not a huge part of the episode. You know, like, most of the episode is all this stuff about, you know, the relationships and everything. That's kind of the excuse... That's like the thing that he's doing so that he has a reason to be in Sunnydale. Like, it's more of a subplot, really. Um, So I thought it was kind of interesting that the title is, like, referencing something which isn't hugely central to 
you know, and it doesn't even reference like the ring itself. It's just like a side effect of what happens to vampires, you know, when they go outside. It's the sunlight is harsh and it burns them and everything. Um, sure. So I kind of was trying to think about what else could the title be, you know, meaning and everything. And it kind of seems like it's dealing with this whole sort of facing of the harsh reality, you know, maybe expectation mm -hmm. versus actual experience of things, um, you know, that sunlight can be, you know, illuminating and warm and clarifying, but it can also be kind of harsh and painful, I guess. Like, there's kind of the idealized of what you think things should be or could be, and then there's the, you know, painful reality, I guess. Um, yeah. Which kind of, you know, seems to be what all of the um, all of the couples in this episode, but especially the the female couple, female halves of the couples are experiencing is this, you know, the idealized notion of these relationships that they've sort of come up with in, you know, um, you know, whether just out of their own fancifulness or out of being misled by somebody or whatever. Um, but then they all kind of come crashing down at the end, you know, for whatever reason, and they're all slightly different. We're going to talk about each of them in turn, you know, but for whatever reason, they all sort of end up getting sort of spurned at the end. Um, and, yeah. and it kind of ends up with the three of them alone and confused, sort of wandering the campus, you know, in, yeah. pro in and... proximity to each other, but not, but not reaching out to each other in any sort of like, communal you know yeah. feeling just a sense of loneliness you know even though there's other girls feeling the same way you know very nearby and everything so yeah and and notably not in daylight but in the dark true that's very uh, true i think yeah. given given the title and i you know part of that's because harmony is one of the three and so she's a vampire so you kind of have to have it at dark time but right. i i think there's significance there that they're wandering alone literally in the dark you know yeah. and and it's so what has the harsh light of day done has it shown them anything and i think you're right to sort of take that in the metaphorical sense of you know when things are dragged out into the harsh light of day it's you know the the meaning there is that yeah there is a sort of like uh uh grim and you know um unyielding perhaps uncaring truth mm -hmm. you know sort of behind whatever it is you know so it's it's yeah that like the truth will be known you know information wants to be free regardless of how people sort of feel about it yeah. um and right right the truth will out kind of thing yeah and and there is a you know there is a harshness to it and a and a sort of yeah you're gonna have some attrition you know because of that psychological or whatever you know uh yeah so there's definitely um i i i would say that that's definitely right i i guess i would disagree just a little to say that i think that i mean the gem of amara really does play a big part of the plot in this episode mm -hmm. 
Um, so I, I guess I would say it's a, it's closer to being a little maybe more evenly weighted than you're, you know, uh, suggesting. But I, I think you're right that mm-hmm. like you do ha- you do get another title, and we've seen it before. And uh, shocker, we'll probably <laughs> see it again, um, where where we'll get other, um, you know, other sorts of of titles like this where there's multiple readings or, or sort of a built-in, you know, yeah. double entendre there. Um, I will, I guess I will just mention one thing, you know, it's funny sometimes looking at how, you know, titles or, and things get translated in, in French. This is, I, I'm not even going to try to pronounce <laughs> it, but basically the word for disillusion mm. is, you know, how they, they, well, mm-hmm. I guess I will try to pronounce it. Disillusion. I don't know if that's even close to being right, but you know, so I think that even that sort of, you know, that translation there can sort of give, yeah. you know, an implication of, of right. that's what they're going for. It's this disillusionment. Right. Um, and, and the illumination that disillusion sort of drives. Yeah. 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 Or, or drives away the disillusion. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I, yeah. No, it it's cuz it's the it's the harsh light of day. It's not a it's not a a light that brings like increased wisdom and understanding. It's like a it's a harsh light that exposes the the flaws and everything, you know. Yeah. That and doesn't allow for you. any, you know, no but no imperfections can go unnoticed, you know. It sort of is a you know, illuminating but in a kind of you know, painful way rather than a than an enlightening way i guess um or the enlightenment itself yeah. is just painful and you can't really hide behind your naivety anymore after it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so since we're sort of talking about the title i also just wanted to bring up um the the album so there's a moment in giles's apartment where uh oz is going through his music yeah. and kind of picking out. So the, the album that um, he picks up there is uh, a velvet underground album uh-huh. titled Lo- loaded. And the first, uh, the first track on that album is who loves the sun. Oh, so, um, you know, I mean, I don't think that there's like, you can read too much into that, but just kind of a little those, Easter egg. Yeah. 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 One of those little there things. For we're talking a about wink, the title. A wink for the knowing fan, you know, um, so yeah, a, a cool little, cool little thing. That's funny. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think you're right though. Primarily we can look at it as, as a metaphorical sort of thing and yeah, we'll, we'll move on from there. Okay. Well, let's talk about, because I don't want to just write all the different couples off as go just having the same sorts of issues. They mm. all have, they sure. all have separate issues. <laughs> so um, so let's start with, um, Buffy and Parker. Um, you know, so we kind of speculated about whether or not their relationship would go anywhere. And it seems that it has, that they've sort of been casually hanging out and seeing each other for the last week. Um, and Buffy's sort of, you know, reluctant to admit how much she's enjoying it, how excited she is, and, and kind of 
not wanting to crowd him, you know, like they're, they're at the bronze, but they're not together. Like she doesn't want to be the clingy new girlfriend. She wants to give him his space and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, it's, you're kind of, you go over the course of this becoming more and more sort of a perfect new couple, right. Of kind of making this connection having mm-hmm. deep philosophical conversations, they understanding each other, you know, he's saying all the right things and, you know, it, and it, everything's going really well. Um, and <laughs> yeah, you know, and to the point of her, you know, she hasn't dated a lot apart from angel, you know, so it's not like she's had all these opportunities to become hugely intimate with other guys, but you do see her getting more intimate with him than, Certainly she has been with anybody else. Um, yeah. So, you know, kind of, kind of surprising, I guess. Um, but, mm. but you can also see, you know, that the relationship is going that way, that even as it's kind of surprising, you're kind of, I don't know, there's, there's just that sense of, oh, this is just, gonna be the perfect guy and you know he like they well, seem to have was, so much in common and he's so sensitive and all these things and um i, I was i was gonna ask because like i kind of wish i had gotten your impression the first uh the first watch you know before before watching it a second time because it's hard for me to go to watch this and to not know and what's not coming. be thinking you know, yeah, the whole time, like how much of a jerk he is, because right. that, as I'm sure you noticed, watching the second, the second time, time, watching time. the early yeah, part, yeah. you know, is is you're just like, oh my god, everything he's saying has such a different, it's too perfect, it's timbre too, to it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, like and, there's, yeah, I can't say I was, I wasn't expecting him to be that much of a creep, um, but there was that hint of in the episode with Kathy. You know, of him sitting on her bed, you know, yeah. and, and chatting her up, you know, and we kind of thought, you know, y- you, you're kind of with Buffy there. Like, it seemed a little weird. Um, it seemed a little bit offensive, but you don't know what, you don't want to assume anything about anybody. And, and you don't know what you're seeing through Buffy's sort of jealous eyes. And because we don't really like Kathy, we want to sort of... right ascribe you do want to blame you want to you want to blame her and you don't want to yeah you want to kind of think that she's you you know putting the moves on him and he's just a nice person so he's not really aware of how that looks and everything um but you know but then after seeing him now you you were like he's absolutely now i'm going back and i'm saying well that was a clear warning you know, um, yeah, you know, we had it right there and, and Buffy had it too. Um, you know, I, I mean, definitely the clincher is when you hear him, uh, giving his, his live for the moment speech to another girl. And you're like, oh, this is his shtick. This is what he says to all the yeah. girls. But even, yeah. you know, even before that, even in the moment when Buffy wakes up in the bed and he's not there, um, you know, and then you kind of write it off as, oh, he just went to get coffees and that's sweet. But there's that, she, her gut reaction in that moment is to feel like he's 
She's left, been abandoned. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like one of those, she knew then and she kind of didn't, uh, you know, and, and you know, you want to be trusting and everything. But, um, you know, and then again, when he doesn't, you know, by the time he isn't calling her for more than, you know, a night, um, you yeah. know, it, it's just becoming increasingly, you know, obvious that this guy is, you know, a complete poophead, as Willow calls him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and probably either that sort of thing has happened to you or you've seen it happen to someone else right. or both or, you know what I mean? Like, so, so sort of watching, you know, watching someone else go through that. You, you, you do can kind of see that. the signs, you know, of it, like, you know, yeah. Oh, just no, he's not worth putting that much right. consideration and thought into. Right. And it does become, I mean, you're right. Like Buffy and Parker, I mean, they've been hanging out a week. And on the one hand, it's not, you know, it's only a week. On the other hand, it's college. And that's what college kids do right. is, you know, you hang out with someone for a few days or a week and you're together. And I know couples now who have been married for 10 years that right. met that exact met same that way. way. So it's, you know, there, it's not like it's even unprecedented that right. that could have happened that like they would have found the perfect person. Right. Uh, and, or, or even, so even you do if it's not, hope. <laughs> even if it's not the perfect person, like a soulmate that she ends up with for the rest of her life, you aren't necessarily assuming he's going to be a complete dick. You know, like you think maybe this, right. maybe this is a, a boyfriend who lasts for a couple months or a year or whatever, you know, like it's not mm -hmm. really until that morning after that you get that sinking feeling of, Oh no, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that's the morning after. Exactly. Right? Like that's when sort of the quintessential. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and that, that is a kind of a, because I wasn't thinking of it as like a a comparison to um, Angel this way, but, you know, the kind of the most painful part is when she kind of confesses to Willow that this is now what she thinks of men and relationships. That right. Is this how it's all going to be? That, you know, and she kind of says, like, sleep with a guy and he goes all evil. Like, you know, that was more, we talked about, you know, Angel is like a metaphor for that, right? Like, like his mm -hmm. turning soulless in a vampire was sort of a, yeah. a, you know, a metaphor for the kind of like, you know, he acts really sweet and then, you know, afterwards yeah. he's a monster and everything. This, we're, here, this we're is less of a, very, a metaphor. What's that? <laughs> I said this is less of a metaphor. This is less of a metaphor. <laughs> this is like, I mean, yeah, in, in the one way it's less, what I mean, in one way it's less monsters, but in another way it's kind of more because this is real. Like, this isn't like mm -hmm. a guy whose soul was taken from him by magic. This is a person and guys right. do this and women do this. People do this. You know, that this is actually a, a real, you know, a painfully relatable and everyday sort of occurrence and it's, and it's intentional. You know, so you right. could kind well, of take it as like that sort of gets you. I mean, it, is that you, you could take it as yeah. like a strong thing that sleep with him and he goes evil. But actually, in a way, he's more responsible for what he's done than Angel was. Um, yeah, right. Because you get you the know. feeling. I mean, 
without the magic ripping of Angel's soul out, yeah. everything would have been fine. Exactly. But that's not something he had control right. or even really knowledge of. Right. It, right. There's not an intentionality that Angel had in that case that certainly Parker has in some sense here. I mean, and and like you get Willow even saying at the end, like, you know, <laughs> you're not getting the whole poop head. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you're missing you know, when Buffy's principle. <laughs> yeah. When, when, when Buffy's trying to sort of think about like, yes, he's, you know, a jerk and whatever. And why can't he be yeah, with me? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's like, that's rough. Um, it is. And that was so, the point where it was like, it was kind of like you had the gut punch of him being a complete flake, which was bad enough. But as soon as she started apologizing, I wanted to like jump mm. in the TV and <laughs> have a go yeah, because yeah. it's that's like, and we talked about that before too with, uh, you know that episode of, oh what was the one, Beauty and the Beast or something where like the oh yeah the girl yeah. you know the victim is, you know the the guy who's the monster is kind of it's all her fault and you make me angry and everything and it is that thing of. He's manipulated it just so that she wants him so much and she's so afraid of screwing it up that if he kind of gives the impression that she's done something wrong, it's, you know, she, her her instinct is to apologize. You know, I went about sure. this wrong. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Not, you know, hey, you deliberately misled me and, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and there's a psychological component there of trying to reconcile the nice, sweet person that you believe this guy to be with, you know, the actual yeah. sort of underlying monstrous personality that he actually has. Right. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Uh, I will say, so you mentioned, like, you thought it was a little quick. Um, but did, did, did it feel at all to you? Like it was on, like, not like it was forced at all, like more from like an acting perspective or anything, or, or what was your thought there with, just from like the characters between them? Um, no, I mean, it was quick in the sense of, uh, just, I didn't expect their relationship to go so far so fast, but it didn't yeah. feel, um, forced when I was watching it. You know, mm -hmm. it, it kind of seemed like um, what you said, like, you know, you could look at it and say, well, that is quick. But it's also the reality is that that's how these things go sometimes. And so it's just because it's quick doesn't mean it's not a realistic portrayal of a college relationship, yeah. you know. So it didn't um, feel um, false in that way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I only I only ask because uh, Joss Whedon has actually said in, in like interviews and stuff or commentaries that uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar actually didn't think that this was realistic. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so that that realistic, it was too soon for Buffy after or? for Buffy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like that it was too soon after Angel left and that, you know, Buffy wouldn't have done this sort of thing. And and. Joss's answer was basically it's college people do stupid things sure <laughs> um well and I think too so, we've, had, we've had such an emphasis on Buffy's loneliness in the yeah. first couple weeks of being away at school that you can kind of see her going 
a little faster than she normally would and maybe doing being a little bit more reckless in her desire to you know or her maybe her excitement over finding someone who she thinks she has a connection with you know right. um well and i think i think there's also the component of he's clearly very good at this sort of thing you know like it it seems like parker makes a game out of this kind of thing right, right. he's he's yeah. A pickup artist. This he's, is what he says to all the girls. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, he spends a week trying to get into a girl's pants or, or a night or right. however long it takes, right, you right. know, trying to get into a girl's pants and then he goes on to the next yeah, one. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't you know, even even sort of looking at it, you know, by saying, Is it too soon for Buffy? Is it, you know, because she thought he was good or whatever, like it's almost beyond the point because it's not that not that you know, he can necessarily manipulate whoever he wants. I'm sure there's people who turn him down or whatever, but like there's a sense in which, you know, someone who's a good con man can con anyone, you know what I mean? And that's basically what he's doing here. So it's, even if it does seem quick, there's also sort of a reason why that might be the case from just sort of the way he works. Um, but yeah. yeah. Well, and there are a lot of people, I mean, not to necessarily throw Buffy totally in this camp, but there are a lot of people who are very, who go, undergo a kind of personality shift when they go away to college, you know, that live quite, mm. quite uh, restrained, conservative lifestyles in high school that do sorts of things in college that they swore they would never do, you know? Um, I mean, well, and I hopefully knew- what Buffy does is, learn from this you know a lot of people just kind of go nuts so it's wouldn't be unprecedented for people to act a little out of character i think when they're in like a new Mm. setting with new people they don't have the parental influence as much they have more freedom um Mm -hmm. you know and and yeah and it, it, it it's not always consistent with who they were before you know and you get that moment from Buffy where, you know, she says to Giles, you know, I'm I'm an adult. I, you know, yeah, yeah. I can do what I want and yeah, yeah. not have to worry about what you're saying. Yeah. So <laughs> and but and Giles is relieved to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he doesn't want to know. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there is a sort of, you know, it's a newfound independence. And, and you think of Buffy as already being pretty independent, independent yeah. you know, of herself. But there is. Yeah, there is sort of that sense that she's just kind of out there feeling stuff on her own. And her best friend has a great relationship. So, like, you you can't sort of ignore that either. Like your pressure element and everything. You know, you find someone, you know, you find someone who seems really responsive and really, you know, fun and interesting and, Mm -hmm. and seems to feel similarly to things that you've been feeling. Um you know, why wouldn't you sort of latch on to that? You know, like that, that just seems like a, you know, one of those human desires of connection that everybody has. Well, and you realize kind of how, how clever his whole manipulation is because, you know, it's almost like any kind of sensitive little speech would do to kind of show what a puppy dog he is. But he specifically makes it about, seizing the moment you know Mm -hmm. so he gets them you know he kind of impresses them with his 
sensitivity. Oh, yeah. But then makes it specifically about let's just live for today and make the most of it, which is totally a, I know you wouldn't normally do this, but let's just go and have sex, even though we don't know each other that well. You know, like. Yeah. Well, he. <laughs> He clearly has his speech down. I mean, he's refined yeah, it, yeah. you know, over time and right, right. people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, uh, Tom Cruise's character there in, in Magnolia. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie, oh, but just a long that, time ago. you know, the very charismatic, you know, yeah, he's much more vulgar, but, you know, that's a different issue, right, right. Uh, you, you know, but just kind of has that presence and and. And again, you know, he's he's a showman. He's uh he's putting on an act, yep. and that's exactly what gets her. But I feel like we should move on because yeah, we, we don't want to spend all our time talking about Buffy and Parker. No. Um, I will just sort of end, I guess, by saying that in the Buffy community, <laughs> Parker is pretty much universally reviled. Uh, he I, I'd be, is... <laughs> I'd be offended if he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I don't think that's a shock to say, but yeah. I mean, this isn't like one of, this isn't say a character who's controversial, like, perhaps, right? like perhaps Anya, who was once a demon and right. has redeemed herself, you know, right. like, or comes right. to at some point, or, or a herself. character that that you have some people on one side and some people on the other side yeah. arguing. Yeah, yeah, even like, yeah, even like Spike. You know, he's he's right. evil, but people, you know, there are people who like him. Yeah. You know, because he's whatever. You know, he's cool. With I would venture to guess that there are very very few actual fans of Buffy, if any, that like parker even a little bit right yeah so yeah there's there uh, seems to be nothing really to like at the end of the day um, no no there really isn't so so good riddance yeah hopefully, take solace hopefully in Buffy that doesn't get hung up on him too much um, well I, yeah and i won't say that this events of this episode won't ever affect sure you know the characters again yeah because you know i don't i won't say one way or the other but it's it's sort of nice i think to know that everybody sort of hates parker. <laughs> everybody hates parker yeah. just like everybody hates yeah, yeah um but anyway anyway on to um, the next couple who, who did you want to talk well, about well i guess we should talk about spike and that's a good transition i think to spike and harmony because i think <laughs> it's something kind of similar Are, but wait 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 did you see that coming that <laughs> when they you were saw together? harmony and no. did you no you, did you had said you had said before i watched it that multiple characters were coming back and so i wasn't expecting multiple individuals that kind of because we got spike and harmony and anya all coming back um yep i was i was thinking more a group like multiples as in like a group of something or a pair or something so ah, i i was kind oh, okay. of I think probably I would have put money onto Spike and Drusilla just because they were a a, a pair. Um, sure. But I didn't expect her. Although I saw Harmony and kind of about two seconds before she turned into a vampire, I kind of had that. Wait a minute! Didn't she get bit yeah. at the end of? The thing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I saw that like a fraction of a second before it happened. Um, but. Uh, but then she's talking about her boyfriend and her stuff. Her boyfriend, and, right, right. It never occurred to you that that would be Spike. You know, as she's 
climbing down into the tunnels and stuff, I started to yeah. think, I wonder. Um, but not yeah. when she first said, you know, my boyfriend, yeah. and they're talking yeah. about the boyfriend and everything. Um, no, it's <laughs> a think great twist. I it is... I think it's such a hilarious thing to have the two of them I together. Know, I like know. I just and I I don't know whose idea like if that was Jane Espenson's idea or if she was working off of something Joss wanted or whatever. Right. But who whoever thought of that, I just think it's great yeah. <laughs> to have the two of them. And so well, Go ahead. Say what you want about the character. I have, I have thoughts too, but I want to hear your thoughts okay. on, on the, the two of them as a couple and sort of the things they do. Well, so I think it's an interesting transition from Buffy and Parker because in some ways Buffy and Parker is very simple. Like you said, everybody hates Parker. There's nothing to like. There's nothing to really argue about there. We all agree He's a complete jerk and a waste of time and everything. And, and nobody's sorry to see the back of him. Um, whereas you can't necessarily say that as Spike. You, there's still that thing of, yeah, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's evil. Yeah, he's completely horrible to Harmony, you know? Mm. Um, but, yeah, but... I love syphilis more I know than syphilis. You, you know, know I mean, he's, he's... What a sentiment. He's, you know, as... as mean to harmony as parker is to buffy basically um yeah and but because we know him better and because we've had you know several you know episodes to kind of get to know him and and occasionally enjoy him um it's more complicated because you're kind of at war between your feelings of i kind of like having him around and and I kind of want to see what he's going to do and say next. And also yeah. the acknowledgement that how is he's the same as Parker. He's not, you know, mm. he's not really any better. Um, and and yeah. shouldn't I want to see the back of him as well? Um, so well, you're kind of, the other, you're a little bit conflicted yeah. there about the character, I think. And I think the other thing that sort of adds to that is we we're not really ever prompted to like harmony in the way that we like Buffy sure, sure, either. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, like, and, and not that, I mean, I don't say that to mean that she deserves the way she gets treated right. by Spike in any way. I mean, certainly she doesn't, but at the same time, we've seen her being mean to people before right, too. Right. Like, you know, we, we've totally, you know, seen her being mean to Cordy, but to others as mm -hmm. well. And, and, and so even like from the beginning where, you know, you have Harmony sort of, you know, again, coming up to Willow. Oh, you know, hey, how's it going? It's like you were never friends, except right. for the three seconds when you signed each other's yearbooks. Right, right. Like you were never really friends with each other. So, you know, even that's fake. And and then she goes back and she's like, you know, I want you to kill Willow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's no, because she's, de she's kind of feel she's the same not, way. She's not the innocent victim. She's a vampire as well. Yeah. And she's. Um, um, you know, and she enjoys provoking him too. Um, yeah. and again, not to say that that justifies, you know, any, you know, abuse or anything and that, or that she deserves it, but she seems to get turned on by his anger and his, right. his, you know, so you kind of have that like, you know, weird thing of she, you know, 
by the end, it kind of gets to her to where she actually is upset by it. But before mm. that, you kind of see her enjoy taunting him and seem to enjoy when he gets really angry and even kind of physically violent. She seems a little, yeah. you know, she seems to enjoy yeah. that a little bit too much. Um, yeah. Well, and and yeah, she comes across in some scenes as just like, you know, like a naughty child who's just trying to get attention. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like like doing bad things just so that yeah. Spike will pay attention to her. And and again, we're like making we're this a steamer number really of times. Hard not to be I don't like I don't want to say that she deserves yeah. what she gets, but at the same time, like I I think she's and I don't think it's like just sort of like subconsciously she's doing it. Like it seems conscious. Like it seems like she knows that doing certain things will get his ire up. And and that means the focus is then on her and not on the others. Like yeah. I don't get the feeling like it's just some kind of like underlying psychological thing that it's right. an overlying psychological right. thing. Well, that's, um, it seems like that's kind of. We've seen that the what we've seen of vampire couples, which is mostly Spike and Drusilla, is mm-hmm. um, and then and the way they treat other people, like the way they interact with each other, but also the way kind of Spike interacts with his female victims and the way Drusilla went after someone like Angel or something. That there seems to be mm-hmm. a perversity in their relationships. That it is very sure. much based on things like pain and anger and you know like it's always going to be like angry sex and it's always going to be like a little bit like a little bit like sadistic and disturbing and and masochistic and everything so she definitely conforms to that um it's not just him and she's kind of the innocent victim she's playing and she seems to be sort of like drusilla that way that um yeah you know, she even though Spike clearly dislikes her in a way that he did not dislike Drusilla. Yeah. There's still a similarity well, in the kind of like way that they interact, I think. And yeah, and that's that's a good point because like we we learn again that Drusilla has once more right. left him and for a still, different and type he's of still demon. Moping about it. <laughs> yeah, not quite as bad. That's all he talks about. Not, some not, days. not as badly as he's not as despondent and alcoholic as he was before, but but he's right. still sort of like bitter about it. Um, yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and 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 I, you almost I I almost think that, you know, part of his you know, thing there is that, yes, he, it's sort of like, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're sure, with kind yeah, of thing, yeah. you know, but except, you know, he doesn't love her. Yeah. <laughs> so like, not it's, doing a very it's, good job at loving her. <laughs> it, it, but it's, you know, you, you also get the sense that like, yes, he likes the sexual component and whatever. And Harmony is good at playing that up, right, you know, the, right. Oh, look at my blue veins uh-huh. right. and, and all that stuff. But like, there's also a lot of reminders that she is explicitly not Drusilla. I mean, yeah. you get the, you know, calling Drusilla the wrong name, Dorcas and whatever. And that's kind of funny. Right. But then you also get like the things like, you know, she walks into the crypt and says, Ooh, can I, you know, can I take something? Blah, blah, blah. It's like Drusilla would never ask. Right. You know, Drusilla would just walk in there and, and take what it. she wanted yeah. and screw what Spike thinks, right. you know, like there's that sense that, 
again, not blaming Harmony, <laughs> <laughs> but there's that sense that she's just really insecure in yeah. herself as a person, as a vampire, as whatever, um, where, <laughs> you know, where she, she, you know, if she were just a little maybe more assertive and not that she needs to do what Spike says or whatever, but like just more like just do what you want right, rather right. than looking at Spike to be the one to give you sort of that validation that it would probably work out that Spike would actually want you more. You know what right. I mean? Like, well, in the times um, where she, even if she's doing this to provoke him, the times where she is more assertive and aggressive, he, he kind of responds similarly. It's when she right. kind of goes very, you know, meek and whiny and submissive that he seems to get like, yeah. Oh, why don't you take her, me you out know? anywhere? Yeah, yeah. I, one, one of my favorite scenes there is when, <laughs> You know, they're like just getting ready to break into the crypt and like she comes up and is like, well, you said you would take me out. And like all the other vampires like, oh, yeah, they're like just kind of grumble and walk away. Not this again. (laughs) Like, oh, here here the boss's lady is being a jerk. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, my God. But, I like, too, um, that the kid yeah. that they have sort of chained up is uh, she had him in math class and she didn't like him then either. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely more complicated. I think you're right for all those reasons, because there are there are reasons to sort of want to see Spike. Like you said, we sort of know him already and we sort of like him. But but you also don't. I mean, the stuff that he does and, and in the end where Harmony is left, you know, weeping yeah. in the corner and, um, you know, and then that last scene at, at the end where, you know, they're wandering despondently in the dark. You don't want to see that. I mean, you you know, you do feel bad for her yeah. in the end, which I do have, I have to say that's there. That's a credit to both the writers and the actors, you know, to to say like that you could take someone as distasteful as Harmony sure. and actually feel bad for her by the end of the episode, yeah. you know, like, uh, so. Yeah, definitely. Um, and she's still around. <laughs> Neither Spike nor Harmony were staked. So yeah. we, we may or may not run across them. Again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um well, and then on to, to further complicate, oh, I think, I think, Maybe Xander and Anya are the most complicated of you don't know what to feel about these two. Um, And even the line between, you know, the the wronger and the wronged is even more blurred, you know? Yeah. Um, We're kind of on a scale of escalating ambiguity here. No, the the Xander Anya relationship is definitely the comedy of errors in this it is, episode. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's hilarious. So I love I love when she just bursts into Giles's house and is like, "You you should lock your door." Yeah, yeah. Go go. And then away. she's like, "I, I want to talk to Xander." Go away. Yeah. <laughs> like she just has no no tact, no no. Understanding no and that of, seems to be. I can see how this will generate comedy that her that seems to be at this point i'm sure she'll develop and become more nuanced and everything um but at that point at this point her kind of defining characteristic is this kind of clinical misunderstanding of humanity and her own emotions and everything um right and her sort of right 
simultaneous inability to not obsess with her own desires and wishes, but her, like, at the same time, her kind of almost, like, detached disapproval of them and and completely, like, almost, like, dismissal of them. You know, like, just... Mm -hmm. She can't be so rational as to not want to fulfill these desires that she's having, but she can't just, you know, talk about how she feels or go for it. She has to kind of very systematically explain them, you know, in a logical, you know, it's, it's all, <laughs> you know, the that. whole rant about, you know, like it, it is so funny how you kind of, she drops her clothes off and everything and Xander's shocked. Um, and the juice sprays everywhere, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then you cut back and you realize she's been talking this whole time about what she wants to do. And he's just staring at her because he's got yeah. no thoughts. And very, like, you know. rational, yeah, like, like it's, scientific it's language. Very, like, yeah. It's very methodical. You know, it's, um, you know, at, mm -hmm. at which point we will be satisfied and ready to move on with our separate lives and interests. To sum up, I think it's a workable plan. And, you know, like, he's not able to concentrate on any of this right now because yeah. and she she's naked she doesn't get the yeah. she doesn't get the kind of disparity between what she just did you know of completely yeah. like exposing herself but also yeah. that that's like contradictory with the very cold logic of her plan you know um and that's yeah. the that's what's funny is like the gap between those two things um yeah well, and and then Xander trying to dissuade her, yeah. you know, from yeah. from uh, following through with this plan. Um, and and that's a that's and, an interesting dynamic with Xander because we've talked about how so much of what how he operates is based on that instinct and that gut feeling that he is someone who is very he doesn't he's not one to kind of analyze and and even disprove of his own intuitions. He just sort of does what he feels, you know? So yeah. they are complete opposites in that way. Well, and... But not to say... I mean, he clearly, like, has... He tries to do the right thing and be the gentleman. I'm not saying he's, like, a slave to, you know... Well, I, I was going to say, but let's let's not dismiss that too much because... He goes through with it. He does. <laughs> like he doesn't, he, you know, he, he sort of puts up the good front and yeah, I mean, you, you know, part of it, you just have to wonder like how much is he thinking like, this is just too strange to be real right. kind right. of thing. Like, like right. where's the cat? This just, you? this never happens to people like me or to me anyway, you know? So like, what's going on here really um but also i mean you get the sense that you know because well he, he brings up faith right. you know that didn't go over you know the <laughs> still, last woman still who more was romantic than faith yeah the last woman who was aggressively sexual with him tried to kill right. him basically right, right. so you know, and and you have to wonder what he's been thinking about, especially, you know, after and then after that, seeing like the whole, you know, the whole Cordy Wesley thing developing as it's developing mm -hmm. and Xander's continued jealousy sort of through that and realizing that he still has feelings, you know, for her to some degree, like. 
I think we could give Xander the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's matured a little bit in that area mm-hmm. and and that he's actually set, you know he's actually looking for someone right to provide a more meaningful emotional connection yeah uh you know rather than just the physical that we associate with him being the body right right so uh, uh yeah no i think it is this is the most sort of again the most ambiguous because on the one hand you could see him you could see each of them as take, taking advantage of the other you know but but then you also kind of understand where both of them are coming from as well so you can kind of see this is the one where i think you can come the closest to seeing maybe both sides of the argument a little bit well and i think if if there's anything i see i don't get the feeling that either one is taking advantage of the other really and i think for me it's more about both of them are misunderstanding the other Mm -hmm. um you know, because everything that Anya says is provably by the end after they do the act and, right, and right. later when she comes up to him, uh, provably that's all wrong. She doesn't get over him and her plan was right. absolute crap. And you right. kind of know that from the beginning, like just her explanation of it isn't very good even. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's you know, that's not going to work. You also get the feeling that Xander actually would like to make a connection with Anya, but because she's so sort of business-like about it, he's not really sure where to take that. Although I do like the sort of call out to uh, his former relationship with Cordelia, (laughs) where he goes, yeah, there is a certain, you know, directness that I admire, you know, like that's, we can see that he likes, this is his type of takes charge. Yeah, yeah. 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 So he, you know, he can kind of get beyond that, but like, like, you know, so when they're doing it and he's kind of buttoning up his shirt and she's sitting on the edge of the bed and, you know, she's like, uh, well, I'm I'm over you now. And and you get the sense that him saying, OK, there is him trying to say what he thinks she wants. Him exactly. To say. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, you don't get the sense that it's necessarily what he wants, right. like that he might actually be willing to explore it a little more. But right. He thinks that she's saying she's not. So, so it, and that's sort of why I said it's sort of the comedy of errors because it, it seems to be everything that they do is based on this misunderstanding. Well, and even that they're having with each yeah. other. Not, and, and there's no, I think, in contrast to both Buffy and Parker and Spike and Harmony, there's no malice or, yeah. or intentional misdirection on either one. Yeah. It's, no, it's I definitely agree with they're that. They're just both so not not good at sort of getting in touch with their own feelings and right. and maybe being honest with themselves where is you know is where the problem lies. Yeah. And even I think um she kind of comes off feeling as sort of rejected as Buffy in Harmony, but you can understand, you know, she's coming up to him at the end there saying, you know, <laughs> and I like her, "Oh, you weren't in your musty basement." Um, the kind of (laughs) with which she talks about the musty basement. Um, but her trying to explain, oh, you know, when I said I was over you, I didn't really mean, but then he's, you know, Buffy's in trouble. He's going to help her. He's going to save her. And you just know when he runs away, she's completely crushed, you know, 
And that again yeah. is that 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 comedy of errors thing of it's nobody's fault. It's just unfortunate miscommunication that I mean, you know, yeah. he doesn't mean to be cold and, you know, he has a good reason to rush. And really, this isn't a great time. But you also know that from her point of view, that looks like he's doing what Parker did. You know, mm-hmm. that looks like he's doing the oh, he got what he wanted and now he's not interested anymore. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think maybe these guys being ambiguous isn't quite the root, the right word because I don't know that there is that much of a, you know, bad guy, good guy dichotomy as there is, you know, certainly with Buffy and Parker. That, like you said, it's not a matter of, it's not anybody's fault. It's just unfortunate circumstances and and misunderstanding, and misunderstanding yeah. or at least not fault of of malicious intent, maybe fault of right of, right of personality or insensitivity or something, um, but nothing that yeah. either of them meant to do intentionally, I guess mm-hmm. yep um, so. All of those couples, I guess we need to sort of contrast <laughs> yeah. against the good the, the couple, one the good Willow couple, and Oz. Yeah. No, who definitely, like, I wasn't consciously thinking of them as a contrasting couple, but they are a couple, and they're the only couple of the bunch who seem at this point to be healthy. Um, yeah. You know, that are kind of happy and getting along and... and functioning well not kind of hurting each other on a regular basis and everything (laughs) so yeah um, yeah so there we go hopefully yeah well and and just sort of from a you know from a positioning sort of standpoint a lot of the episode seems to be one or so the first three couples there one or the other of the couples seems to be after you know it's like they come together, have sex, and then at least one of them is trying to get away from the other. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's there's sort of a movement towards and then away in kind of all three mm-hmm. of those couples. With Willow and Oz, though, there you see them together in in most of the scenes where either one of them there's like two scenes, I think, where you see like Willow with Buffy and Oz isn't there. But otherwise, in most of the episode they're both together, right? It's they're at the bronze and yeah, Oz is on stage and Willow's in the crowd, but they're there together. You know what I mean? Or like you see them coming up to Buffy and Parker in front of the dorm room and they're holding hands and, you know, Willow's bit, but they're together. And, you know, Oz was out there in the van to help save her. And, you know, um, they're at Giles's together and that kind of, so it's just like, you know, you get this, you get a more steady foundation kind of with the two of them like they're and they've been, you know, dating for a while and whatever, but you know, there's, there's this idea that, yeah, they are sort of in this episode, the, the, the solid couple, you know, the ones that everyone is sort of trying to emulate or, or trying to figure out how they get their willow or their eyes, you know? And so, yeah, I think there's, there's a good, bit of comparison you can do there. Yeah, but. definitely. Um anyway. And then of course we have Giles. I don't know if you had anything um specific. Just, about I mean just him that, that bit about just that bit about 
none of your business. I'm sincerely relieved to hear it. That kind of moment of, <laughs> yeah. of he's actually, he doesn't, she feels like she needs to defend herself. Really. He just doesn't want to know, like, you know, yeah. like, Oh, thank God you stopped trying to make an excuse. Cause I'd really rather just not think about that. Like very, yeah. very similar to Buffy's reaction to his relationships, you know, like, well, and, it, and it's know, like, once he knows that she's and, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, uh, well, and the TV and the TV, he's shallow like us and they're not even sure if it'll work and everything. Um, yeah. Willow's trying to make excuses. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it's like art decoration. Yeah, it doesn't like, even turn and, on. And I love his just, he's just like, his only explanation is public television. <laughs> like, like that, yeah. that's, okay. I don't that pay makes it for okay. it, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. I guess we should also mention the gem of Amara, which does play a pretty big, um, I mean, I don't mm. think, I don't, I do think the focus of the episode is more the relationships, but we do get Spike, um, you know, putting a lot of effort into getting this gem, which Buffy then gets off of him and which Oz is going to take to Angel. So I'm wondering, yeah. are we going to see Oz pop up in Angel or maybe they'll just say, Maybe Angel will just make reference to the fact that Oz, you know, stopped by or something. But I don't know. I'm looking forward to seeing. Maybe we'll get to see well, Oz. And and I like that, too. Like how, you know, they, he, he sort of just casually brings up at the beginning. Oh, we have a gig in L.A. Right, you right. Know, coming up. Like, yeah. And I didn't and, you notice know, that until the second. The second. Viewing, right. Yeah. Right. And I think it's I think it's well placed because then by the end it. it you know, it's not just this sort of like out of the blue. Oh, yeah. I happen to be going to L.A. Yeah, it's a it's a oh, yeah, he did mention he had a right, gig in right. L.A. So like that kind of makes sense. And. Angel starts in 15 minutes, right. so, yeah. right. so it you know, like I wouldn't be surprised if we were. To it's see. not a shocker yeah. that. Right. You know, we're back to the, the you know, these episodes are, are going back to back. And so now you have to think about how does that change Angel? The show, the right. character, and well, that kind of thing too. Like, and I don't, and and we, I suppose we can talk about that next week or yeah, when it like, becomes relevant. Because my my immediate first thoughts are okay. Now he can be out in the daytime. That's a huge yeah. change, both for him in his lifestyle, but also just the tone of the show. You can have scenes during the day. It's not going to all take place yeah. at night anymore. Well, and and his hunting of other creatures and stuff isn't sort of inhibited right, by the, by, the sort of by the nocturnal things that's so, right and then that's, you know and then you also I don't want to go you have the potential for buffy you can see how that's a big step for buffy because an, an invincible angel could potentially be a slightly frightening thing under certain circumstances but sure. she's made the decision to give it to him anyway um well, which is kind of a shows... nice bit of trust after yes, the disappointment exactly. of Parker, you know. Well, and after the disappointment of Angel leaving. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's still that, the reason that he's leaving is kind of because of yeah. her. You know what I mean? Because he can't be around her. Yeah. But if now he's invincible and all of that, I mean, it is a nice bit of trust because it, it shows that she's not begrudging. She's not holding any... Mm -hmm you know, uh, fault, you know, for, for his leaving or anything against him. Yeah. So I think all of that's true. 
we're down the road of speculation though and we've got 30 seconds left for this segment so we need to wrap it up any last thoughts about this episode uh no no that was everything that i had i think okay okay pretty pretty good it is good yes um and yeah we'll see where that that gem of amara that pesky little gem of amara or maybe we won't. Maybe it'll never yeah. be mentioned again. <laughs> maybe Oz will like too. accidentally I, drop it in a ditch on his way to LA or something. I guess just the the other thing is too though is that you do see sort of both Angel and and Buffy sort of toying with this these similar themes, right? Of the loneliness and trying to make a connection yeah. and that kind of thing. Well, you know, it's funny um, you say that because I I. I have to qualify, but I do kind of fundamentally stick by my statement. I kind of said last time with the Lonely Hearts episode that Buffy could never do a episode like that, like that dark and that, you know, and I think that's kind of true. Although this episode kind of went further more quickly than I would have expected with those, those sorts of themes, you know, with kind of Mm. having, you know, the, 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 relationships be sort of foregrounded and how mature they are and how kind of you know disappointing they are and everything um yeah i wouldn't i wasn't expecting that so while i still don't think it's quite the same tone as angel and i don't expect it to get quite the same tone as angel it still went further in that direction than i was anticipating yeah so that is and you're right i mean we're only we're only into the third episode right. of the seasons, right. and, and and they're only and you know, and we, they're only a we, couple episodes into college. Full stop. You know, right? And and we did talk about you know college would sort of address some more adult issues, perhaps. Right. But I think you're right. Like you know, last time we were talking about crazy roommates. Right. You know, right. like like this is a very different tone. It from is, that. yeah. But but I agree. It's not angel dark. You know, it's not serial killer of singles bar right. you know at a single right you bar don't kind of have so. the the std themes or the you know that there's just a slight there is a slight tonal difference but this is definitely more mature than maybe i was giving it credit for achieving so um mm-hmm. interesting to see how quickly i had to re- take back that statement considering i said that last week <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's all good anyway on to the new doctor. The new doctor. The new doctor. Yay. Goofy, goofy doctor. Quite goofy. I, yeah. I said or tweeted to you, I can't remember, or texted you or whatever, something to the effect of, it's it's hard to hate a guy who's so likable. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, there's, there's... Uh, there's and and you're like well you know you don't want to hate him and then, yeah I, I I don't I don't I'll, think we're I don't think we should want to hate any of them although I know I, sometimes I would it is qualify difficult that for by saying that you know I feel like that is though sort of there's a certain sort of prejudice you know yeah. you would come in so now that I, I you know this is my third doctor, <laughs> so I'm an expert. I'm an expert now, and you know now that I've seen yeah. two regenerations, yeah. uh, you know there there is sort of a, a prejudice that you come into 
you know, having uh, against the new doctor and or or for the old doctor, however you want to mm-hmm. phrase it. Um, and so, yeah, no, I don't. I mean, obviously, we're well, I, and I I'm think sure they're thinking we want to like this new doctor. You, I and, think the, and, the, and we do. The but, prejudice comes in. I think. I mean, look, some people are prejudiced against in the sense that if it's David Tennant or whoever, it could be any of them, you know, that I, that I love that doctor. He was my doctor. I hate the new guy just because he's new, but I think most yeah. people don't want to feel that way. I think if it comes in anywhere, it's because you feel like if you like the new guy, you're being disloyal to the old guy. And so that's where you get yeah. a little bit confused emotionally. Um, so, yeah. you know, it happens. It's a thing. And, 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 and I think that was just, again, my way of sort of saying, okay, like, I, you know, I actually laughed out loud, which, so we've talked about our sort of emotionless watches mm-hmm. <laughs> of shows and stuff before. And that goes both ways. I don't tend to laugh out loud at stuff, even though I certainly find things mm-hmm. funny, but I, there were several moments in this episode, especially early yeah. on where you're laughing out loud. If you don't laugh out loud at, his eating of various stuff yeah. and immediately spitting them out and finding yeah. new creative ways to disparage different yeah, foods. Yeah. Like you, I, you know, you don't have, a I, heart. I think, so, I think my favorite is carrots. Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's just this hilarity yeah. to, you know, some of the, and, and he even says funny. Oh, I'm funny. That's, That's good. good. Yeah. That's good. So, you know, I mean, you know that he's hamming it up oh, and yeah. he's doing it as much as he can. And that's, I'm sure, the direction that he was given. And, and that's fine. And that's good. Well, and, and, and I think and, we did talk. I don't remember how much this was on record or just, you know, between ourselves. But, you know, with um, with Eccleston leaving, A, the show was a lot newer. You know, people only had one season with Eccleston and the show kind of had just been brought back. And B, the regeneration was something of a surprise. It leaked, so it wasn't totally a surprise, but Mm. you didn't have as much, you know, kind of... Well, and for me... For me watching it or someone watching it new now, it's a total surprise because you're not... I didn't know anything about the fact that it had been leaked or anything. Right, right. So I think... But, um, so, but it, 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 for some ways, I think that gave um, maybe Tenet had more of the advantage in terms of um, there wasn't that much time to build up as much expectation and, and loyalty to sure. the character in the show as I think Matt Smith is having to contend with here um, because yeah. he's had a long time of people, you know, upset that Tennant was leaving, like genuinely upset and, and feeling resistant to, you know, determining ahead of time that they weren't going to like this new guy. Um, so I think it's, and I don't say this to like despair. I think this is a brilliant episode. Um, but I think Moffat very intentionally said, okay, I'm not going to allow them to, you know, and I'm sure there are still Mm -hmm. some people who, just refuse to like him, you know, and, you know, I can't argue with that, but, you know, I think definitely Moffat went out of his way to Mm -hmm. what he called the charm offensive, you know, like, this episode is going to be so much fun, and the Doctor is going to be so much fun, 
that I'm not going to give you any room to, to question him, you know. Um, you know, and he kind of, I kind of think there's some similarity to the Christmas invasion of that last 10 or 15 minutes when the doctor wakes up and he, you know, is kind of bubbling and fizzing and solves the plot. You know, he does everything. He like talks the monster to death and he has a sword fight and he takes down the British government and he does all this stuff. And you're kind of overwhelmed with his personality and everything. But, but yeah. this one, it's sort of like that last 15 minutes spread over the whole episode, you know? So you kind of have the whole episode to really enjoy just watching him, you know, be who he yeah. is and learn himself and everything. Um, and, and it's definitely, I think, meant to make you laugh and meant to kind of win you over with humor, um, which it does, I think. Yeah. And Moffat's yeah, sitcom no, background comes in very handy. <laughs> yeah, well, and even, I mean, in the first five seconds, you have, you know, Tardis spiraling yeah, yeah. off and, and, you know, he's sort of hanging by his fingernails, you know, from the edge of the door and stuff. So, you, yeah, I mean, you're getting this very sort of slapstick mm-hmm. opening, you know, right from the, you know, almost crashing into Big right, Ben. Right, right. You know, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, all of that. That so my you you mentioned your favorite was the carrots. Are you insane? Yeah. My my favorite would be the the beans are evil. Bad bad beans. <laughs> bad bad beans. Um, which I I agree. I can't stand <laughs> beans. So I I'm right there yeah. with you, doctor. Yeah. Um. Um. But yeah. But well, and I think. But sorry, say what you were gonna say. Well, no, I was just gonna say like from there you get, you know, you get the you know you, you do get the sort of the segue then into the oh what's 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 wrong with this crack that you've told me about like so now so now it's you know you've sort of won over everybody you've won over the little girl mm-hmm. and and we're kind of with her mm-hmm. right you know that's yeah we're looking at him sort of through her eyes i think yeah. and yeah and and sort of the absurdity but also the the likableness of the absurdity yeah. <laughs> you know so um it's not a kafkaesque absurdity it's a, it's a yeah. delightful absurdity i just like saying absurdity <laughs> um but the uh yeah so then then you get the okay well let's go let's go take care of this crack mm-hmm. because if you're down here and you're not afraid of me or you know what's going on then there's got to be something wrong right with, and that and that's such a great up there. that's such a great moment of you know, yeah, you're not afraid of anything. Look at you just sitting there. Like she's just so unflappable in the in the face of all this mania. Mm-hmm. She just has the most deadpan, you know, kind of like expression. But yeah, it's so it is that thing of look, if I'm doing all of this and you're not phased, that must be one hell of a scary crack, you know. Um, yeah. And then you kind of yeah. get that slow camera pull in like you know it's serious. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing so, I was going to say too, which I also was thinking about contrasting with, um, the Christmas invasion, um, is in that, ep- you both, it, both of them, you have the doctor trying to find out, you know, who are you? I don't know. I'm still cooking. Um, he's, yeah, he's yeah. not sure yet. So just like the 10th doctor, he's like, I don't know who I am, but whereas the 10th doctor seems to figure it out by talking, you know, he kind of philosophizes about, am I, 
am I a liar? Am I a coward? Am I a cheat? What kind of guy am I? And he kind of vamps about it. And then he kind of says, well, the evidence suggests that I talk a lot. Um, mm. You know, the, the, <laughs> Got a I gob. have a gob. The, the 11th doctor, not that he's not talkable, talkative, because he clearly is. Um, and all the doctors are to one extent or another. Um, but he seems to learn himself much more physically, you know, that it's about, um, yeah. it, it's, it's about his, his steering being a little bit off, learning how to walk. <laughs> like it's almost like a baby yeah. animal that's been born. It doesn't quite know how to stand up or, um, or he doesn't know what food he wants. So he, like a baby, he has to eat them all and spit them out until he finds the right thing. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and continually through the episode, he's always, judging his own height compared to other people like you see that like when he meets jeff in the house um when he's talking to jeff he's kind of going up on his toes and then going down almost like he's trying to figure out okay i'm shorter than this guy and that guy's he's yeah. trying to figure out what am i like physically so i think that's a slight difference between they're both trying to figure out who who am i but they go about it slightly differently um yeah so, anyway, yeah. I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, no. Well, and I think the other thing about the... So, just the other difference is, right, in the in the Christmas Invasion, we don't get a lot of the Doctor until the right. end. Um, so, like, a lot of the episode, he's kind of passed right. out. Right, and that was definitely... <laughs> so, um, uh, Moffat, that... The Christmas Invasion is kind of an extreme example, but it was something of a tradition for the Doctor's first episode to be, for him to spend a lot of it recovering. Um, I mean, the Christmas Invasion mm. takes that really far. Like, he doesn't come in until the last 15 minutes or something, really. Yeah. Um, but Moffat deliberately wanted to subvert that. Like, instead of having, let's give him an episode where he should be recovering, but he doesn't have a minute to recover where he just has to keep going from one yeah. crisis to the next. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And he has to prove himself by this sort of trial by fire. Um, so. Well, and that, yeah, I wanted to bring that up because there's a, a couple moments where you get that idea that he's not taking it maybe as easy as he should right. be. Cause um, you know, like when he first sort of, gets out of the TARDIS and, and he has that moment and you see the, you know, energy or whatever come mm -hmm. out of his mouth, like, which is definitely a callback, I guess, yeah. to the Christmas invasion. And I don't, it, does that happen with other regenerations? I, I mean, I it seems to be a, it's a new who thing. Um, the classic, okay. the classic regenerations didn't really use the same imagery for, they okay. would be all be kind of whatever they wanted to do at the time. Whereas, New Who has sort of standardized what regeneration looks like. Um, okay. So, um, yeah. It, it's, but it's yeah, always, so you get that. In New Who, it's always that exploding golden light. And then in the mm -hmm. in the aftermath, the kind of vapor that comes off of their bodies and out of their mouths and everything. Yeah. Um, so, so you get that moment, but then you also get um, another one where... You know he, you know he's saying it's too soon. I'm not ready. I'm not done yeah. yet. Um, which is sort of like you know similar to along the lines of you know I'm not. I'm still cooking. Yeah, Heat, yeah. Right. Like it's like like there's still changes going on, and and you get 
one like one or two other moments where like he seems to be yeah like you said the physic physicality like he's you know falling or sort of clutching his heart or something like not mm. doesn't there seems to be something still happening inside right, his body right right <laughs> um and so i don't you know i don't know what to make of that other than just i mean this is the first one just after he regenerated and and he, yeah, he regenerated in the middle of a crisis or kind of his regeneration caused a crisis right, right, in the TARDIS, right. um, you know, that that made it, you know, do what it did. So, you know, he's still kind of going and things are working themselves out, uh, you know, inside his body, I I guess. I don't I mean, yeah, may, I, or maybe there will be more of that. I don't know what to make of of those things at this. Yeah, point, I mean, so. I think we can kind of put it down to when Tennant regrows his hand and says there's this 15-hour rule, that it's not something that happens in an instant, that it's a process that maybe mm -hmm. takes a certain amount of time to reach full completion or something. Um, yeah. And within that time, there's all sorts of weird chemical, biological things that are going on. Um, yeah. And, and, and you get, too, that when Amy whacks him with the cricket bat, he kind of wakes up and says, whack on the head, just what I needed. Like, like that helped him a mm. little bit. It was like a jolt to the system that seems to, he, he seems a little, <laughs> I'll give you a shock, a little more lucid after that. Um, not quite as, yeah. as bonkers as before, a little bit more in control and a little bit more able to think what he's doing Jeez. and everything. Literally knocked some sense into him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, personality wise, I mean, hard to sort of say, you know, yeah, we, we get this sort of more slapstick, the physicality mm -hmm. stuff. Um, we get that he's funny. So I guess is that more of a 11th doctor thing, you know, that he's, I think the doctors maybe are little... always supposed to be funny. Um, yeah. Well, then we, yeah, we certainly get funny stuff, but I guess like, maybe leaning a little more that way than than with David Tennant, who could be really not funny at times, well, like really I serious. Think and... Let's keep our eye on that and see. See what the trend okay. is. Because yeah. um, I think the doctors are always... It seems like they well, are always I... capable of both, of, of, of intense, yeah. you know, emotion and, I mean... and intense funniness so maybe we can kind of keep an eye on where where does his ratio fall you know um and now that we have three doctors we can kind of make a little triangle out of them i guess well well i was gonna say going back to the very first episode i i sort of talked about christopher eccleston and and his goofiness right, right. And, and his reputation sort of for seriousness and, <laughs> and and i still okay um i still stand by <laughs> not that he couldn't be serious yeah, yeah. i just if we're talking you know ratios it seems to me a little more one side than the other mm -hmm. but i mean this episode definitely seems you know with matt smith mm -hmm. as the doctor on the goofier side the you know yeah. again with the slapstick and and the uh the jokes and the the spitting and <laughs> the food and stuff yeah um yeah, well, definitely, definitely does, and yeah, and even the the sort of the the regular admonitions of, you know, 
don't grow up right kind of thing right. like you that i i just i don't see either really eccleston or tenant being of that ilk so to speak yeah like they they definitely seem to be more balanced mm-hmm. <laughs> on that way but i mean it's hard it's yeah one no, episode it is like hard. what what can you it is hard with one you know episode, what can you say yeah. generally about it um, but but that that seems to be the definitely the, the... i think both are true like definitely it's the first it's one episode and it's deliberately meant to win you over with its charm so i think not i wouldn't you know it's not a coincidence that this is he doesn't have any serious stuff to do really in this episode yeah. um yeah but i i don't think you're wrong to notice the the stuff about um growing up with amy and and the kind of mm-hmm. uh particular whimsy that he seems to sort of have yeah yeah and the yeah the references to fairy tales and that kind of yeah. thing like yeah, yeah. which are generally considered to be more well that's you know i i thought of that too because it, <laughs> giving giving the story to amelia in the beginning you know i think we kind of agree that you know tolkien kind of disposed of any notion that fairy tales are exclusively for children you know so neither of us kind of feels that way but there is a historic association with those two and you know very often those two do go hand in hand so you know and i and i do think so i think kind of giving it to amelia really tells you that up front you know we're in Mm -hmm. and i think i've said i think davies did there was a fairy tale quality to the davies era and i think davies did play with those tropes but I think Moffat um, is very deliberately sort of framing this as a fairy tale, it seems to me. I've definitely talked about the fairy tale elements, and I think that uh, the Davies era of Doctor Who did use those, you know, motifs and tropes and everything, and that he was playing with that idea. But I think that Stephen Moffat is very deliberately framing this as a fairy tale narrative in a way that I think it was more one of the elements that Davies sort of had at play, um, you know, or, or it wasn't as baked into the iconography of it, I guess, you know, it was more something that you'd have to kind of look a little deeper to find those. It wouldn't have been as as obvious, I guess. Um, Mm. Whereas this relationship between this kind of, madman in a box who falls a magic man who falls into the garden of a little girl and then whisks her away it, oh, it's so fairy tale yeah um and it's totally yeah, and very like hmm. changeling sort of thing right stealing the baby yep. stealing and, the kid and peter pan is the other big one i mean she's in her friggin' nighty um both, yeah that's both true as that's a little true. girl and you know you're totally supposed to be thinking of peter and wendy at the end with her and her nightdress um, and I think we can kind of talk more about this, whereas I think I brought up with the Davies era, the Peter Pan elements I always thought with the ninth and 10th doctors was more that kind of intense longing that Peter feels at the end mm. of, of looking through the window at the things he'll never have and his sort of longing for humanity and all those things. Um, 
Not to say that the 11th Doctor disposes of those feelings entirely, but I think you're supposed to associate him here more with the sprightly, you know, spirit of youth who comes in and whisks you away in the middle of the night. And I don't think he's without feeling. You know, he clearly cares about Amelia. You know, he clearly wants to protect her and help her. But he seems mm -hmm. to have... It could come across, and I think it maybe comes across to Amelia, as a little bit more fickle. That he's sort of popping in and out of her life and whisking her away. And you never quite know when he's going to turn up. You know, and, and there's a kind of, like, unpredictability to him. Whereas the ninth and 10th Doctors were more... You know, they meet someone, you have an adventure together, and then very nicely they invite you to come with them. Whereas this guy is more, I guess, I just the way that it's framed with Amelia's relationship of meeting her at different points throughout her life, um, it seems to have a slightly different quality to it, I think. I'm not quite sure what adjectives yeah. to, to ascribe to it, but it's different. Yeah. Well, and I think just going back to the whole, you know, you should never really grow up. I think I would say that that's even sort of Tolkien's point even a little mm. bit too, right? Like that, that fairy tales aren't for children because, or, you know, aren't only for children because, you know, they're also adult stories, but that there's something in adults that should be childlike yeah. too. You know what I mean? Like that, that that's really sort of the, the main you know, point of what Tolkien says. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, well, we can, we can talk. And I know, so of course you did your whole paper <laughs> on, I did Dr. Who and the fairy tale element. I in did. And, and when so asked, I, and I defer to you on all of that. Well, no, I think, <laughs> like I said, I think Moffat is bringing that theme more to the forefront. Um, so I think we can definitely find more to say about it. Um, and, when asked on that panel what episodes I thought were the most sort of fairy tale ish, um, this was one of the ones that I named. Like, definitely, I think that's very deliberate. Um, yeah. 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 Cool. Um, so we get some just sort of sticking with other aspects of the doctor. Mm -hmm. We get some very iconic moments to uh, things that even I sort of knew about because I've just heard them mentioned in various contexts, yeah. but didn't really, didn't really know the context of, you know, where they actually occurred in the show. So we get things like, you know, bow ties are cool. Yeah. Uh, when, when he finally, sort of dresses in it and and that seems to be a running thing too right like the doctor you see the doctor sort of in the old doctor's mm -hmm. clothing you know for an episode or so and then you know by the end of the episode though he's he's picked out his new outfit yeah, and, yeah. the getting and dressed sort of scene is kind his of a new thing man. Yeah. um and he spends all like i know people have mentioned that usually that happens fairly early in the episode or with tenant he's most of it in his pjs um whereas here right, right. he spends most of the episode in tenant's clothes you know in the converse yeah. and the pinstripes and the tie and everything so you have that very strong even though no verbal reference is being made to the old version of the show 
you get a very strong mm. visible reminder of it because he's wearing his clothes, you know, for most of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so another, another mention or quote or whatever that I've heard is, you know, the, the basically run, mm-hmm. uh, quote, yeah. uh, which you brought up. There's a, derivation well i guess not derivation because it happens first but a uh earlier instance of a very similar quote mm-hmm. but not quite the same in uh daleks of manhattan yeah was it? yeah uh where he he says basically um yeah. run uh but very different context yeah. and i and i think we we agreed that the basically run is pretty much a reference to this episode and not that one to the, yeah the the kind of <laughs> As an iconic line. Absolutely. Yeah. Although, I don't think Moffat is above stealing good stuff from other people. Um, I think that's sure. part of his genius. Is, you know, a lot of things that, you know, he is very brilliant and very unique and comes up with things that nobody else has thought of. But because of that, I think people want to assume that he comes with up with everything himself. And so it's funny when you find mm. a little thing that it's like, hey, he just stole that. Um, and he totally yeah. transforms. Like you said, it's a direct quote, but the context is completely different. You know, instead of telling mm. his companions that we need to run, he's saying, you, you, the bad guys, you should run from me. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's I like that, that you can have, I love when stuff like that is a, a repeated quote but with the context Mm. totally transformed into something else um and it's a nice repeated meme it is a repeated meme and and it's a nice little um i think it's a nice little continuation of when we first got the hints coming of the regeneration in the next doctor coming and we got river um her whole spiel about my doctor and what he's like and she says mm-hmm. he can turn an army around with the mention of his name um and we kind of got a hint of that you know the doctor in the library says i'm the doctor look me up and then the Vash yeah. Narada sort of look him up you imagine and then they mm-hmm. run away um but here yeah. you're getting that much more strongly because Explicitly. you have him saying to the atraxi all these other aliens who've invaded what happened to them you get the the mm-hmm. faces of all the doctors and then he says mm-hmm. i'm the doctor so basically run you know and they turn yeah. their tail and run you away. know i didn't i didn't think of the, that in that context but you're right that is sort of the army running just at the sound of his name but you get the other very clear connection to that because what else does rivers doctor do mm-hmm. He he opens the, the door with a snap fingers, of his fingers, yeah. and and yeah. and you see David Tennant do mm-hmm. it, but there it's Tennant. Yeah. here He's, it's yeah, just he, natural. There's that it's big just, pause boom. before Tennant does it. Of I wonder if this will work. Here it's yeah. confident. You know he knows, and it's yeah. totally like he's impressing Amy, um, and he knows yeah. that this is going to look great. You know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, very very interesting because I I think. I didn't pick up on that other one, but I think together there, yeah, it seems to be a very clear callback to that, to that episode. Hmm. Cool. Um, so the other, the other reference that actually, I don't think I mentioned to you before, but that I, I, I actually recognized the second time through, um, is he, he calls her, uh, the girl who waited. And I've seen that, 
that phrase as well. Although I did not know that it was tied to which the the girl who waited. Mm. Yeah, Amy. What does he say? Amelia Pond, the girl who waited. You know, whatever. I've seen that phrase before, the girl who waited, but I didn't know it was tied to a specific companion or or whatever. Yeah, uh, keep keep um, your eye out for that because that's not uh, that's not going to go away. um, That phrase. Oh, okay. the girl who waited. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's maybe that's why. Maybe it's because it's used in various contexts mm-hmm. that it's just one of those that I've happened to run across. Yeah. Um, well, should we should we talk then, about the girl who waited, or do we have? Oh no, we well, have more I, stuff. That's why I was. Doctor. That's right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There probably is a lot more with the time. We could probably keep talking about the doctor for the whole hour, but. Um, that's true. Well. I know you. Yeah, I do want to talk. I um, want to talk about a few specific things because I want to talk about. So let's get this whole Doctor Vision (laughs) stuff out of the way because, like, my first thought. So before I don't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast or not, but I mentioned it to you. So there was there was a guy at my old job where. he he mentioned to me when when he sort of found out that I was watching through Doctor Who. Him him and his girlfriend were big fans, and so he he mentioned to me that in the um, transition between the Russell Davies and Stephen mm-hmm. Moffat eras, that there is a what he considered to be a distinct uh, increase in sort of production value. And and I think you and I were talking a little bit about that offline, and just saying how. There definitely has been, you know, sort of all along some increase and and that um, there's even some like I don't know if it's a commentary or or a special Mm -hmm. or something where you mentioned that, you know, it's just sort of by virtue of technology getting cheaper that they could sort of do more, uh, you know, at one time. So so this I think the biggest sort of thing that you get, there's two things, right? The first of those I think that you get is this doctor vision thing where he sort of slaps himself in the face and then you get this like view of him sort of going right. through, you know, like uh, almost matrix style. But the other right. thing that I thought of was absolutely a Moffat thing, which is the mind palace, hmm. the Sherlock, yeah. you know, looking inside himself and sort of seeing everything. Now, I mean, even from, from, 11th doctor to you know sherlock there's you know technology gets cheaper and you can do more stuff certainly so you know there's maybe better stuff and and it's certainly different because it's a different context but that was immediately the first thing i saw yeah well definitely Um, the the way it kind of freeze frames on everything it's very similar to the mind palace, but but he, like definitely the way that Sherlock seems to kind of freeze frame and little speech bubbles pop up around whatever yeah. clues he's noticing, the deductions that he's making. Um, right. So, you know, and the doctor definitely, that's something we haven't really seen before is this kind of photographic memory, you know, because he sees right. in passing Rory with a cell phone who happens to be facing the wrong direction as to everybody else. And he somehow is able to zoom in on his, uh, you know, his vision is so good that he can zoom in on his nursing ID from like, you know, yeah, 30 feet away or whatever. It's like, that's a new level of ability mm-hmm. that we didn't really know the doctor had. And that's definitely a Moffat-y. If you've seen Sherlock, you know, you can't help but draw. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. kind of wonder, 
which of those came first in conception? You know, what did Dr. Vision precede the mind palace or which one kind of, you know, because you can't help but draw a connection between those two. Yeah, because um, he, he would have been working on Sherlock. At the same at time. Yep. Same yep. time, right? Yep. So, yeah, like it, it's almost. You know, and is he even, because he's doing that, and it must be obvious to Moffat that those things are similar, you kind of wonder if he's drawing a direct parallel there between his two shows mm. of are we are we being clued into the fact that the doctor is a sort of sherlock who kind of whose mind is up i mean we kind of know the doctor we always knew the doctor is operating on a higher level um but here mm. we get it like a more of a like an actual visualization of what that means um sure sure um and and different from even like Christopher Eccleston where, where you're getting this, you right. know, like he's standing at the table and he's like, more data, more data, you know, what's, what's, yeah, narrow it down. So like there you get, like, it's more of like a, oh, it's almost like a more subconscious process, even though he's saying more data, more yeah, data. Yeah. It's like, like it, here it's like, he's yeah, literally sort of stepping through like right. all of the physical spaces that, right. Are. Right. So, um anyway uh the other things from a sort of production value i guess you could argue is the tardis mm. the tardis gets a makeover absolutely yeah. um and uh so in just sort of talking about it and and it was the second time through with this as well watching that i sort of thought about it as um almost as if the tardis itself is regenerating yeah. uh in this episode like you which didn't happen before. Um, now, kind of, I, I don't know if this is common, but in both uh, regenerations that we've seen in this rewatch, mm. um, you have it starting with the TARDIS, you know, spinning out of right. control, right. right? In both cases. Yeah. But like in the first one, the TARDIS didn't really get damaged. No, really. Um, no, he manages to kind of more or less land it okay. It doesn't yeah, get, it's a crash landing, but it's not like really. It's not the car isn't totaled, you know. Here, yeah, yeah, like he not only explodes it from the inside out, but then he completely crashes it so that it's on its side. He has to use like a grappling hook to climb out of it. The swimming pool's in the library, you know. The whole thing's in flames. Yeah. Um, it's completely yeah. trashed and needs to rebuild itself from the ground up, basically. Yeah, so it yeah, is more like yeah. a regeneration that way. It's not like, oh, it just got bumped around a bit. It's like, no, it's damaged to the point that it has to right. completely rebuild itself, just like the doctor does, I guess. And and apparently takes quite some time. Yeah. You know, given that we've we've seen the TARDIS crash into the Titanic and that got fixed like right away. Yeah. Yeah. No, here it like locks him out of it and like it's like Yeah, it's like nope, there's construction being done. Yeah, you, you can't, can't come in. This way. Yeah. Um so very very interesting. And there. do you notice um, um do you notice too that the outside is different as well as the inside? Um and if you haven't, you should look. Um because the, the old one was more a duller blue, a little bit more battered and stained and weather mm beaten and everything whereas this one um is a very very bright 
royal blue with very white windows. So even it gets a new paint job. <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. the inside, as the designer said on the... And and wax and undercoat. Totally, and yeah. Right? And yeah. the designer said on, on the one of the interviews, he's like, the inside, he's basically, we pimped it out. Like, it's yeah. way bigger. And it has more... It's shinier. It has more bits of mm-hmm. stuff all over the place. Like, it's... The old one always looked sort of organic and kind of half alive. Like, this cave with, like, you know, natural structures and everything and kind of dimly lit and everything. Whereas this one is very shiny and clearly, like, mechanical. Like, all the bits are... Mm-hmm. It's like bits of old typewriters and a gramophone and and hot and cold taps. And it's all, like... It's all, like, strung together things from other pieces of equipment, basically. Mm. Um, yeah. So, hmm. and actually the the design of the outside of the of the TARDIS, like that bright blue, um, to, to speak of Moffat's ceiling from other things, he actually took that from, not from the TV show, but from the Peter Cushing movies, which were these movies okay. starring a human named doctor who in the 60s um that featured daleks and they were in technicolor that was the big thing was like if you watch Uh, doctor who on tv it's black and white but if you go to the movies it's in technicolor so the tardis Uh, was particularly blue um in that version and he even though a lot of fans put that in the non-canonical box um moffat loved that TARDIS so when they were redesigning he thought I'll I'll have that thank you (laughs) right right cool I did not know any of that um so the other thing I want to make sure we talked about I guess I don't know if it's specific to the doctor or just sort of the situation in general but seems to be important is um around this whole crack Mm -hmm. and and the the cracks in the skin of yeah the universe and um, we get the, the references at the end there um, from of all people, the the patient zero, right. It's the uh, you know, talking about um, whereas I, I thought I had the quote right there, but I'm, I'm must've put it. Oh, I have it here. (laughs) Um, The the universe is cracked. The Pandora will open. Silence will fall. There you go. And, um, we also there's also another reference to where the doctor you know asks about the crack and mm. and the pr- prisoner zero is like well I I didn't make the crack and and the doctor's like well someone <laughs> did and and you get the sense so and patient zero is like well you know what you, you don't know like where the cracks are coming from like what you should it seems right. like that that it's implying that the doctor should know where it is and that there's something strange going on. The implication that I get is that it has something to do with the doctor Mm. that whether he caused it or, or whether it's was caused by something he did like, you know, not directly, Mm -hmm. but like sort of indirectly that, that there seems to be something going on there between what he has done and, Right. And something going on with these cracks that are appearing in the skin of the universe. Yeah, no, it's um, definitely 
um, seem there seems to be a joke that the doctor's not in on in that moment. The way that the way that she the way that yeah. she says, "Don't you know where they came from? You don't, do you?" You know, it's a very taunting right. and you know she calls him, you know, Time Lord. Right. So she knows who he is, like, or at least where he came from and stuff. Mm. And and so there, yeah, there, it, right. There's this. It seems like there's something that, right. That not only that he is he not in on, but that he should be in on, like that he should know, and that there that it's a failing somehow that he doesn't right. know this information. So all of these things, uh, you know, and I'm just going back to the fact that you sort of talked about before how Moffat sort of has a, a a better sight of sort of the overall arc of a season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these seem to be sort of important things that maybe we'll need to pay attention to throughout yeah, the season. Yeah, no, and I, a, and I a, definitely. Along yeah. apparently with the girl who waited kind <laughs> of thing, because I, I had not picked up on that 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 phrase was important other than that i've just heard it before so yeah and and i'm not necessarily saying it has like i i think i'll say it that's an important phrase to associate with amy's character i won't i'm not saying like that it's it has any mythological significance although it might you know but but that phrase we're gonna hear that again um and definitely yeah like you're getting it's and it, I think it's it's tricky because I think Davies maybe while he didn't have as much of a long term plan in the sense of several seasons out you know like he didn't know he was going to bring the master back necessarily but I think within a season he does know where it's going generally but it's just that you he's not as specific about like Bad Wolf is early on in the first season. It's just that it's not until episode 12 that you realize that it's important, you know, or Harold Saxon, yeah. you know, is on a poster in episode one of season three. And we just don't, we don't get its significance until later. Whereas I think Moffat is wanting, Davies kind of wants you to say, Oh my gosh, I had no idea that that meant something. Whereas Moffat wants you to play the game. <laughs> of trying to figure out what it means. Um, so mm-hmm. he's kind of telling you there's these things, right? There's the cracks, there's the Pandorica, and there's this reference to silence falling. And mm-hmm. he wants you to engage in the in the puzzle of figuring out what those mean and how they fit together and everything. Sure. Um, and I did sure. mention way back in Silence of the Library that silence was going to be an important element but that it wouldn't quite, mm. it's not the silence of silence in the library. But here we are. Here's, we're one episode into Moffat's tenure. And silence is making itself known. So, Sure. Well, um, now that we have very little time <laughs> left, we should probably talk about Amelia slash Amy. And, talk about the girl who waited. Um, yeah. So. And we can talk about Rory maybe a too. But, so. Um, is. I, for my money, the whole scene of Amelia, you know, packing up her suitcase and getting on her kind of coat and gloves and hat and then running out so excited and sitting on her suitcase and just waiting is one of the most, if not the most poignant image, you know, in 
the show. <laughs> it's just like wrenching, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's the same. I'm sure you've noticed the similarity between this and the girl in the fireplace. Um, and Moffat's yes. very, well, yes, absolutely. Was going to bring Moffitt's that up. It's very, so. uh, open about his own theft of himself as well as other people. Um, but, yeah. but this kind of, which, you know, it's the same thing. And, and that's horrible as well. But here you get, like the way she's just a little girl and with her nightgown and her welly boots and her hat, like it's just so like there's something about that that makes it so viscerally, you know, sad. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. that like, that's well, absolutely and, one of my favorite things ever is that. Whole and then sequence. the flash, the flashback to that when, yeah he leaves again and you're not quite sure how to take it because at first I thought, Oh wait, is he going back to to when she was a little girl? Um, but then you realize, no, it's actually, she's dreaming that she's still a little girl. And so you get again, that, that idea that even though she's grown up, she is still kind of a little kid inside despite her claims that she grew right. up, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's these references to, well, you know, I trusted you and then I grew up well actually, but no, based on sort of the vision that you give of yourself, you know, that the, the monster mm-hmm. takes and, and based on your own dreams and stuff that we sort of see, it seems like you are still a little girl inside. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, a very interesting little, uh, addition there and and yeah like you said like she's sitting out there in her sort of nightgown and stuff and of course that's what she comes yeah. out in and that's where she you know when they yeah. leave she's wearing her nightgown right. <laughs> and she's concerned about the fact that she's wearing her nightgown right. and he's like oh don't worry there's a wardrobe <laughs> even though he just stole clothes from other people like he didn't even take his clothes from a, the wardrobe so. right no he Anyway. Shoot, I saved the planet for the millionth time. Shoot me, I kept the clothes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Yeah. No. I, yeah, I think. Yeah. No. Like, that's good. The fact that we've seen Amy as a little girl and as an adult, you know, I think we're definitely supposed to be thinking about the relationship between, like, this whole thing of growing up that the doctor keeps bringing up and saying to Amy. Uh, growing up, you never want to do that, and and I'm gonna fix that. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's something to keep our eye on is Amy's relationship, kind of the fact that we know both Amelia and Amy, um, mm-hmm. and kind of what it means to grow up, and what is the doctor's relationship to growing up and to people who have grown up, and what can their relationship be to him and everything. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and and that's true. You know, in life, too, like the people that you see grow up, you know, whether they're family, you know, nieces, nephews, whatever, that kind of thing, or even your own children or, you know, just people that you happen to know and and watching them grow up is is relationships change, but they also kind of don't. You know what I mean? Like there's there's that sort of dualistic thing there. Um, and, And I like, you know, there's sort of that callback to you know, when she's talking about being a, a kissogram and he's like, you were, you were 12, yeah, five yeah. minutes ago. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, right. Right. That, or what, how, or and that's kind of how grown-ups yeah. look at their kids. Like 
you can't do that. You mm. were just a little girl. But the kid's saying, yeah, that was 12 years ago. You know, <laughs> I'm not a little yeah. girl anymore. But to the doctor, that was just five yeah. minutes ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, yeah. and the kissogram thing is sort of, you know, even though it's not, there's some people who refer to Amy as a stripper. And it's like, look, she's mm. not a stripper, but, uh, she still has a fairly provocative job, you know? It's something yeah. which is grown up in a way, although also strangely kind of adolescent, you know? Um, and you yeah. get that sense of Amy as maybe in a little bit of arrested development, you know, that, you know, she is grown up, but she also has kind of an immature job, you know? But it's, but it's, sexually mature so that's you know so you're not quite sure how to feel about that um and well and and with that sort of panning over her desk right you get the drawings and you get the the little dolls not just of the doctor but of herself as well yeah right yeah so you, you you get these you get this idea that there was a sort of Barbie and Ken thing with the dolls. <laughs> well, and, and, like, and you get the contrast of panning up from the childhood toys up to the wedding dress. You yeah, know, which of is course. the ultimate juxtaposition of childhood and adulthood right there, you know? Yeah. And you imagine yeah. because she says she has to get back in the morning for stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Um Without confirming or denying anything, you imagine, you know, so you see, she has to get back for stuff. Um, the wedding dress is out in the open for her to look at. And also out in the open for her to look at is all of these doctor, raggedy doctor toys, you know, of yeah. drawings and dolls and stuff. So you get the sense of maybe somebody who is experiencing a little bit of cold feet, Conflict. you know, con- you or, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. there's this sense of as the as the wedding approaches you know she's bringing out all this old stuff to look at um yeah even that that conflict is sort of you know a a duality right so you get it's the i want to run away mm -hmm. right which is a very sort of childish you know running from your problems or your situation or whatever you know or adolescent sort of thing to the but i have to be back in the morning which is a very responsible sort of yeah. thing. So it's like, you know, it's kind of having your cake and eating it too. Right. It's, you know, I can run off with a time traveler cause he can get me back right. in time to get married when I want to, when I'm ready right. for it. Right. Maybe tomorrow, maybe five years yeah. from now. Yeah. And <laughs> um, you can always return to this exact spot. And, yeah. And you can return back. Yeah. Without any harm or whatever yeah. being done. So, yeah, there is that there is that sense of definitely that that pull of of two different worlds, the 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 responsible adult world versus the the childish not irresponsible but but ah uh, responsible, <laughs> like lack of yeah, responsibility. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that I think there's a difference there between like irresponsible is almost like you you're actively not taking responsibility right. for something whereas there there's not a good term i at least not one i can think of offhand yeah. that just sort of shows like there's 
you know, not being responsible. It's, it's, it's a, you know, you just, you don't have responsibilities and that's a good thing actually. That's, yeah. that's not a bad thing in, in that you're ignoring anything. You're right. just, um, anyway, as child children don't or yeah. shouldn't and, and many don't. Um, right. Although I suppose there, there are many who do as well. <laughs> well, but you, you uh, think children shouldn't have that level of responsibility. Ideally, right. Right. That's what yeah. I mean. Like, you know, children shouldn't have to be the ones to take care of their parents. They shouldn't have to be the ones to go out and find food for themselves and, or for siblings, right. uh, you know, and that sort of thing. So, right. although um, you get a weird, you get a weird bit of that with Amy here, because again, as a fairy tale link, we have an orphan, Right, she says she doesn't have a mom and dad, mm-hmm. so we have a child orphan, which puts you in the realm of fairy tale. Um, and you, but you get this. I she has an aunt, and you're lucky not to have an aunt. Um, and and yeah. her aunt left her all alone in this big old house by herself as a little kid. Right. Um, and she's yeah. kind of very independent. She's not scared. She can make food. You oh know? yeah. She can do all sorts of yeah. stuff. So you get a weird. The, the lines between Amy's childhood and adulthood are very mixed up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think you get that, too, with the split between Amelia versus Amy. You know, that you kind of have distinct names for, you know, her childhood name, which the doctor specifically calls a fairy tale name. And then that she sort mm-hmm. of rejects that in her, you know, now she's Amy when she's grown up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to talk real quick, though, about the dress, because that brings up the question of who is she marrying, right? The 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 sort of prominent figure in my mind would be mm-hmm. Rory, I guess, because that's – he calls himself her boyfriend. Right, her, but her she sort seems, of boyfriend. <laughs> he, he, he seem, she seems to shun that a little right. bit, like – yeah, maybe kind of, or once, or whatever. Um, I guess the other only real candidate is Jeff, mm-hmm. uh, who is better looking. Right? And Do you like that bit with, who, with what's your friend's name? Not him, the good-looking one. And then she, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. she immediately says Jeff, and or like, oh, thanks. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, and and clearly there seems to be at least. In Rory's mind, there seems to be some contention there. Like, yeah. like maybe Amy and Jeff used to date, and now they're not. And now Rory and Amy are sort of dating. But like, right, right. Some some sense you know, of but, inferiority on but, Rory's part. But yeah. the thing that makes me wonder, yeah, the the thing that makes me wonder there is because the doctor says to Jeff, you know, this is when you fly. Today is the day you save the world. Like he's he's giving Jeff, you know, confidence right. and whatever. And and good good looking guys with confidence are the ones who get the girl. So, <laughs> right. you know, maybe maybe Jeff, Jeff maybe has Jeff sort of in the in last two years, and, yeah. yeah, you know, gonna or I you know I don't know. Maybe she just has a wedding dress hanging in her closet. I yeah, no woman who I suspect have done that sort of thing. <laughs> um, not well, not enough to be, no, no. Um, but the, uh, you know, I mean, there's a possibility, but anyway, I, you know, I don't know at this point, those are the two possibilities. I mean, honestly, it's Moffat. It could be some totally random guy yeah. who we haven't met yet. So, you know, I don't know what to say about that, but, uh, just wanted to sort of 
bring that yeah. up. Yeah. Um, Rory, the sort of goofy, mm-hmm. you know, good good enough, but not mm-hmm. great sure. guy. Jeff, the the good looking and and possibly popular and right. sought after, you right. know, guy right. at this point. And <laughs> I like and the doctors. Who knows? Get a girlfriend, Jeff. <laughs> he's got yeah. Well, exactly. Imagine, Get a girlfriend. You can only imagine what he's got on his laptop. Maybe uh, maybe he went maybe out and got a girlfriend. Amy yeah. is that, yeah, and maybe Amy's that right. girlfriend. Right. Who knows? Um, so anyway, all of that said, perhaps we'll find that out at some point. Um, oh, oh, oh! The other thing I wanted to bring up: Raggedy, mm. the the Raggedy mm-hmm. Doctor. There are several references to that. That's actually another phrase that I've I've heard before, and I did not. Again, I didn't know. I actually, if I were to guess, it would not have been. Amy that I would have guessed was the companion that went oh, really? with that. So very, yeah. Interesting uh, to me to sort of see that, but if, I mean, kind of obvious now, you know, you see the suit yeah. and the, you know, the, the ragged E condition in which it is. Right. Uh, that was an awkward way of stating that. Um, and, and, but also again, sort of the callback to, Right, Raggedy Ann and Raggedy mm-hmm. Andy. Right, it's 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 the dolls. Yeah. It's the um, that I love that. <laughs> I love that she used to make Rory <laughs> pretend to be right. the Raggedy Doctor. Well, and I, that um, that reminds me. I wanted to mention this too because I had said with you know, like the fairy tale thing. Another thing he's bringing to the forefront with the Moffat. You always have to put your metafiction glasses on. Um, and so Rory saying. Uh, that he was a he was a story he was a game you know that that's what the doctor mm, was was yeah. a story that we told and a game that we played and especially I think with Amy um, you know growing up with having this hero in her childhood who she believed to be an imaginary you know a story you know who then you know disappears and returns later in her life there's a lot of metafiction in there like amy's basically a doctor who fan who loved the doctor as a kid and then he went away for years and years and years and now he's back and he's better than ever you know and that kind of thing and i've even heard um like people use that uh i think it was on comic-con last year craig ferguson did the hosted the panel and he kind of started saying when i he said when i was a little girl um you know i had this imaginary (laughs) friend and then, you know, and, and one day he came back. So he kind of uses Amy as the, the framework to discuss the return of the show, in a way. Um, yeah. But so you just kind of get her, that sense of her as someone who, unlike Rose and Martha and Donna, who we've seen, who sort of meet the Doctor, and for Donna has a little bit of a break from him, but not that long. Like, Amy's mythologized her whole relationship mm-hmm. with the doctor, you know, that for sure for 12 years, this was a game that she played um, and sort of yeah. dreamed and fantasized about. So, right. and, and, and brought other people into right, that. Right. They all, they all recognize you know, <clears throat> her because she apparently told everybody about the doctor, you know? Yeah. And, and saw a psychiatrist, right. <laughs> all of that kind of stuff too. So yeah, like this is, this is obviously a huge part of yeah. her life and yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, yeah. And you kind of get very interesting developments. That, there, that dual so. sense of her 
ex her returned and renewed excitement at having him back, but also her sort of anger at him for, you know, where yeah. have you been for 12 years? And I, she thought that she was crazy and, you know, and convinced herself that this was just a game that she played. Um, but it, it, it wasn't. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. So they're off. And I guess just sort of my last thought here that I want to make sure I get out is, you know, we talked about Amy being an orphan. Mm. Um, so how long is it till something like Rose, who wants <laughs> to go back Day. to meet her father, sure. uh, till that sort of desire comes over her? Right. And and maybe it already has. Like maybe that's been part of her right. game already, right? Because isn't that sort of the quintessential thing that orphans dream about is not only finding their parent, not only finding parents, but finding that their parents are really alive and yeah. have come to take them and that there was just something evil that right was keeping them from you know reuniting right, right. so well and you uh, even got the doctors saying that about rose that he speculates that the fact that he mentioned time travel was what changed her mind for that reason you know whether or not we believe him on that he thought that could be true and yeah. and here amy's certainly had a long time to think about what could be yeah. attractive about time travel? And it would almost be strange if that occurred did to not her, occur yeah. Her yeah. to her. Yeah, like it would. It'll. It almost seems more likely that it would have than it would not have. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's uh, no predictions per se, but that's just sort of the things that mm -hmm. I wonder at this yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, and in, in which direction that it'll all, go? All good so, things. We'll. We'll see, I guess, uh, but we should probably stop now, and uh, tomorrow we'll we'll come back and we'll talk yeah. more about Doctor Who and about the next episode of Angel, in which we may or may not see the gem of a man. <laughs> well, wait, I have a couple quick production notes, which I just wanted to fly through. Right oh, now. I'm sorry. sorry. You wrapped it up. In the, no, no, no. In go ahead. Climax. I, um, I did. That so, no, coda. I, the coda is that definitely we're not alone in our enjoyment of this episode. Um this is number 17 on the most recent Doctor Who magazine poll. Um, so one of the most beloved of all time, you know, certainly of the Moffat slash Smith era, um, but just generally very loved. And every, I think most everyone, even the, the people out there who have issues with the Moffat era, and they exist, um, most everyone agrees that this is like one of the best episodes. And one of certainly one of the best introductions to a new doctor, a new era, um, just mm -hmm. as a kind of a first episode, it's certainly one of the strongest. Um, I did want to mention a couple things about the actors. Um, you kind of remarked on the similarities between Amy and Amelia, um, and they are actually cousins. Um, although weirdly they had never met before this episode. They sort of they oh, sort of really? knew about each other, but they they moved away from their homes when they were young, and so just never actually physically met. And so I think when they were searching for a girl to play Amelia, Karen Gillan, uh, who plays Amy, said, "Well, I have this cousin, and she's the right age, and we look alike, and everything." So they met for the first time on set. <laughs> wow, kind of crazy. crazy. Um, but uh, also, I wanted to just mention again that Karen Gillan was 
uh, one of the priestesses in the fires of Pompeii, which we mentioned at the time. So she had her little cameo before, um, before her main appearance mm -hmm. here. Um, and also two of the other actors, um, Arthur Darville, who plays Rory, and Olivia Coleman, who is Prisoner Zero in his, uh, when he's the, the mother with the two little girls. Um, the yes. mother is named, is this actress Olivia Coleman. Um, and they're both have very prominent roles in Broadchurch, which I've mentioned you a know, bunch of times. I should have picked up on that. I totally was like, I recognize her and could not figure that it's out. It's probably from all the broad church stuff. Um, and, and, and of course it is. She's, she's the, the partner, she's right? the detective. Yeah. She's, she's David yeah, Tennant's yeah. partner. Um, yeah. and Arthur Dar Arthur Absolutely. Darville plays the, the local vicar. Um, so they both have big, oh, okay. big roles in that. I would not have picked up on that. Uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Now I, now that you say that I, I can picture um, him, but I, that was not, something i would have yeah. picked up on um so i know we have some fans of that amongst our listeners and if anybody hasn't seen it go see it um also i saw i saw yeah. arthur darville on broadway he was in the musical of once and he's a great singer great guitar player so there you go hmm. um i cool. never knew that until i saw him and it was like okay rory can sing he's quite talented All so right. good to know anyway um that that's a lamer way to end than the way you started to end it. But <laughs> I just wanted to mention this. That's all good. No, it's good stuff. Good information. <laughs> all right. Well, next, next week, week we will be back. All, all right. right. See you then.